song makes the nomination sound really pleasant and fun, doesn't it? That's, that's what we're going for, though, in this series. We want to learn from each other. So first of all, how was the brunch? Was it a good time? And we want to thank Heather Schlemmer. Again, Heather organized that whole thing for us, the promo materials, the sign-up sheets. She's made it easy. And thank you to Heather for organizing it. Thank you to all those who brought uh, items to share. And hope that was a great time. And, and the plan is, as Heather kind of stepped up uh, to to participate in this ministry, really to lead this ministry quarterly, want to have some kind of big social event for the whole church. And then also got to say um, that Lisa has been, Lisa Kasman leading our coffee bar ministry. We've asked for volunteers the last several weeks because we want to fire back up the coffee bar uh, here uh, post-COVID. We can now celebrate. We have six sets of volunteers to serve coffee. That took two weeks. That only took two weeks. A leader tells you people are great here, or people really love coffee, or maybe it's both. So we're going to have an awesome time, probably late May, early June. We've got this coffee bar set up. It has to be clean and supplies ordered and all that kind of stuff. And, and so that's going to be available here uh, in the coming weeks. And, and how many of you realize having a cup of coffee in your hand really is a big deal when it comes to standing around and fellowshipping and, and talking to people? And so we invite you, you know, to hang out, and, and we're not in a rush to get out of here necessarily. Hang out and, and make friends. So... Uh, it's a great day today, and one more thing, the, the live stream is actually live. We've had a pre-recorded service, so I want to welcome all of you who are watching live right now. We have the, the Facebook, uh, Facebook page and YouTube, where folks can watch live wherever you are. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. And So, uh, this series here, The Family Tree, uh, and today we're talking about Anglicans and Methodists. What we're doing in this series is we're learning about the various branches of the family tree of people who want to follow Jesus throughout the centuries. You say denominations and people are like, well, that's kind of divisive. That's, uh, you know, I think of arguments and, and fair enough. And there's been a lot of that. But as we, as we look at these various branches, what we realize is, is these, are, these are people who had their own struggles, their own thoughts, their own questions, their own doubts that we talk about here so often, their own cultural assumptions, who created their own movements that were meaningful to them. And as we go through the family tree, it may be that we find out that, wait a second, I didn't know this particular branch existed. I've been going through this question, this thing, this, my struggle and my spiritual journey, thoughts that I've had, and I didn't know that there were, there were people 800 years ago on the other side of the planet who were thinking these same kinds of things, and all of a sudden, I'm not so much alone 
anymore. Yesterday I was driving with my family, and uh, I have two boys, six and ele- or, yeah, 11 and 6, and the 6-year-old, and we were driving down the road here, and he said, you know, sometimes, it's so sweet, he said, sometimes I look down the road and I think I see water, but then we get closer and the water disappears. Isn't that sweet? And you just, you just love to see your, you know, them discovering the world. He's learning about the world. And I said, buddy, that is a great observation. And, you know, there's actually a name for that. You're not alone. There are other people who see that. Like, your mind's not playing tricks on you. That's a thing that happens here in the desert. And it's called a mirage. I said, good observation, Bubby. Good job. That's why we're doing this series. Because he, he experienced something in this world. He said, I think I see water. But then we get close and there's no water. Is it me? Is it my problem? Is something wrong with my eyes? And it's so cool to be able to say to him, no, actually, this is a thing that happens. And there's a name for it. And that's why we're doing this series. You have these questions, doubts, assumptions, thoughts. Actually, maybe there's a name for that. And you're not alone. And so we've already talked about Catholics. Last week we talked about the Orthodox Church. Today, Anglicans and Methodists. Next week, Lutherans and Presbyterians, May 22nd, Baptist, Anabaptists, and Pentecostals, and then May 29th, non-denominational Christians, including churches like the Well. And we've shown this graph here is a little pie chart every week of all the Christians in the world. You can see Catholics are over half of all the Christians in the world. If Pentecostals were one denomination, they would be second, and then you have the Orthodox. And then it kind of goes around here, you see the Anglican and Methodist there in kind of blue, and we'll call it teal. I don't know. Aqua. We could debate that, I suppose. We could start a new denomination based on the color. But you see Anglicans and Methodists there in the pie chart and where they fit in. And and, uh, every week, what we're doing in this series is we're giving you three things. Basic facts and history about that denomination, that branch of the family tree, the major tenets of their faith, the things they believe. And then third, what we're doing is we're asking, how can we grow spiritually from learning about them? We're not critiquing them. Now, you're not Catholic or Pentecostal or Orthodox, so yeah, of course we could criticize, but we could criticize ourselves too. And they could criticize us, and there's just no need for that. So what we're asking is, what's an education look like? How can I actually learn and grow from learning about these movements? So let's just dive in here, and we're going to cover both in the same week. So when we say Anglicanism, we're talking about the Church of England. The Anglican Communion includes 80 million members worldwide. It's made up of churches in full communion with the Church of England. That includes the Episcopal Church in America. Episcopalians are the American branch of the Church of England, and you can just kind of see here the family tree. You have the Jesus, you have the, the Great Schism in 1054, you have the Protestant Reformation, and then off of Catholics, you have Anglicans, and then you see Methodists coming off of the Anglicans, right? You see that? Where Methodists are kind of a branch off of the Anglicans. So the Church of England has one of the more entertaining origin stories. When uh, Henry VIII really wanted an annulment, we're not going to talk much about Henry VIII on Mother's Day, probably not appropriate. But he wanted an annulment. The Pope wouldn't give him one. And so he started his own church. So he could, and he went through several wives. And, and, uh, and so he separated from the Catholic Church. And, and the thing is, even with the entertaining and really horrid origin story, there were great leaders in the Church of England who made it a great church that has been a positive influence on the world in many ways, including, including my life. And we'll talk more about them when we talk about distinctives. And, and so there's, there's Henry VIII, the, the ladies' man right there. There he is. 
And so out of Anglicanism, you, you have this other branch of Methodism. So there are about 40 to 70 million Methodists worldwide, 200 years after Henry in the English Reformation, when they began the Church of England. Uh, John Wesley was a priest in the Church of England. He, he lived almost through the entire 1700s, from the beginning to the end, lived through the American Revolution. Wesley lived a long, extremely productive life where he was a priest in the Church of England. He remained a priest there his entire life, uh, but he spawned a movement that eventually branched off of the Church of England and became the Methodist movement. The BBC network in England listed him as number 50 on their list of the 100 most influential Britons in their history. John Wesley changed England and, and, and really changed the world. So John and his younger, younger brother Charles attended Oxford University, and they were passionate about spiritual growth. Oxford's not a party school. These are smart guys. There is intellect involved here, and there's a passion for spiritual growth. They created a discipleship group in college where they would hold each other accountable to be good Christians and, and some of the other students because they had questions they would ask each other about their spiritual growth. Some of the other students said, man, they're really methodical about their spiritual growth, and they made fun of them by calling them Methodists. And then as this movement grew... Uh, John Wesley became a brilliant organizer, and he traveled thousands of miles by horseback during his life, and he did something that was odd at the time. He preached outside of church buildings in open-air meetings. He took it to the people in, in town squares and, or in a field, any, a stump, a boulder, anywhere people could hear him. I think we have a picture of him preaching outdoors. This is just a famous image of Wesley. You see just the masses gathered around him. His younger brother Charles was a poet and wrote over 9,000 hymns. And he penned the theology of, of the Methodist movement into song lyrics. And so John and Charles were a combination of brains and heart, which is rare in the religious world, it seems. And, and, and to give you an idea of how intense and passionate he was, about reaching people, he said, I look upon all the world as my parish. Maybe you've heard that quote, the world is my parish. In other words, I don't just pastor a church out in the countryside somewhere. Wesley said, the world is my parish. God loves the world. And so he built congregations among the urban poor in England to the extent that some historians think he helped spare England from the kind of revolution that, that France went through. And the French or the French revolution because he met so many needs, social needs in England of the, of the 1700s as the industrial revolution was taking hold and, and alcoholism and, and life, you know, life was falling apart and, and the urban decay and the industrial movement. Wesley came in with this Methodist movement and they cared about the needs of people. And then he organized his, his there weren't churches because they're part of the Church of England, but his groups into societies, classes, and bands. A society was a larger group of people, kind of like this. This would be a society. And then a class might be, you know, 20, 25 people, I don't know, or even 10, 12. That's what we would call a connect group here, a small group. If you've ever been a part of a small group ministry, Wesley was doing that in the 1700s. Those were called classes. And then bands were groups of people, maybe three or four people, who were kind of like accountability partners. And they would really walk alongside each other and just share their spiritual Lives. By the way, and this is all I'll say, some people ask me, Ryan, how come you're not talking about Mormons in this series, the LDS Church? 
and maybe that's for another time, and that's fine. Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was actually a member of a Methodist class in upstate New York, and they removed him, uh, and they charged him with necromancy, which is speaking with the dead. Interesting piece of history uh, from his life, but that came out of the Methodist movement in upstate New York, and he was a member of their group for a temporary amount of time, but you can even see how that organization influenced other religions and where we live. So Wesley went on a mission trip to Savannah, Georgia in the mid-1700s, and he sent Methodist preachers to America just as America was fighting for independence. So Methodists were on the ground during the Revolutionary War. Um, they, rev- uh, they organized circuits all over the American frontier. A circuit rider was a Methodist preacher who rode a horse around a circuit of ta- uh, towns, stopping, preaching, organizing societies, classes, and bands, and would come back in a few weeks or months. By 1790, there were 58,000 Methodists in America. By the, by the way, it said the average lifespan of a circuit rider was three years, riding through the American frontier, where I'm from, in the backwoods of Ohio, in horrible conditions, these people getting pneumonia and preaching the gospel. I mean, there was, this was a fiery, intense movement. By 1860, there were 1.7 million Methodists, and it became the largest denomination in America through a combination of passion and organization. A couple other factoids here. Another branch that was briefly mentioned off of Methodism is called the Holiness Movement. And these are, these are churches that basically said Methodists aren't conservative enough. They're not fiery enough. And so around 1900, there were several branches off of the Methodist Church and the Holiness Movement. The Church of the Nazarene, the Wesleyan Church, the Free Methodist Church, the Salvation Army, the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, and the Assemblies of God, if you've heard of those denominations. Some of those are Pentecostal. We'll talk about them again. Um, and most of my ministry experience as an adult was in Methodist churches. So people come to the well, and they're like, who are you? You know, what do you believe? And, and so sometimes I'll tell people, you know, I have a Methodist background. There is a Methodist pastor here in the valley who said, I'm more Methodist than most Methodists. And so when you think about the well, and, and I started a church called One Church in 2012, I was influenced by growing up in Ohio. Methodism is just in the water in Ohio. It's in the culture by Methodism. And I served in two Methodist churches as an adult, as an associate pastor, before I planted these churches. My grandmother was what's called a licensed lay speaker in the United Methodist Church. That meant when the pastor was gone, she could give the sermon. Notice I said my grandmother There are denominations where a woman is not permitted to give a sermon. But when I was growing up in the backwoods of southeastern Ohio, I would go to church with my grandma, and every once in a while she would give a sermon. Regularly, she would stand up in front of the the congregation, and she would teach a class, uh, which was an adult Bible study, men and women, and she would just go through like a curriculum and teach the class. And I was really proud of her, and she was a good leader, and everybody, men and women, respected her. And I saw, oh, this is, a, this is a woman who leads, and that wasn't weird for me at all. That's weird in some denominations, who won't, who won't let a woman preach or lead. But I saw my, my grandmother doing that. And then I went to a Nazarene college in, uh, in another part of the forest of Ohio. I don't know what it is with me and how I end up in forests and remote locations, but I went to a Nazarene college, and um, here's the truth of why it was in a forest in a remote location, because it was away from the ills of the city. And parents send their kids there to kind of protect them from all the bad stuff in the city. And I, I, there are great memories I have about that experience, and there are some that I wish were different. But I, I met my wife there at that college, 
And at that time, in the Church of the Nazarene, um, Nazarenes were not allowed to drink alcohol, and, or they couldn't go to a club, they couldn't dance. Um, there's a joke, I don't, I don't know how many kids are here, why don't Nazarenes believe in premarital sex? Because it might lead to dancing. And so, uh, I'm not really a part of that, so it's kind of a low blow, but I was a part of that, so maybe I can make that joke, I don't know. At least went to the college. At, in, in their history, Nazarenes couldn't go to movies or play cards, uh, but they kind of loosened those rules over the, over the course of the years. But in college, tell a quick story, I tell it myself real quick. In college, uh, my roommate and I, uh, you know, we had an apartment with some other guys. And uh, I was not a bad kid, but uh, senior year, I went and I bought a bottle of whiskey. And, uh, and just to kind of, so I, I came back and just the env- to tell you about the environment, I hid it in a box under a bunch of clothes in my closet. So, you know, there was no safe involved, but there might as well have been. Like, it was just very covert. And my roommate came in, and he tells the story better than I do, but, but I, he walked in, I'm like, close the door, close the door. And we closed, you know, closed the blinds, cl- turned off the lights, you know, kept, it was like a speakeasy in the 1920s. We always kept, what's the password? And just kept everything really on the DL. And, and, he, and he tells it like, he calls me Gear. Gear went over and just started throwing clothes up in the air, and I see clothes flying out of this box, and all of a sudden I pulled out this bottle. And that's how I felt, you know, going to this, to this school. I mean, I, I would have been disciplined how, had, they, had they caught us, but, you know, we were like outlaw Christian bootleggers, you know, in this, in this college. But, but you can see now, if you know anything about Episcopalians, they tend to be very progressive now. And so you have the Church of England that is generally pretty progressive, and then you have Methodists that kind of occupy a middle space. The Methodists are splitting right now, as we speak, over the issue of LGBTQ inclusion. There are churches who want to include LGBTQ folks like us, and then there are other Methodist churches who don't. It's splitting right now. The Episcopalians did a few years ago. And then you see holiness churches that tend to occupy the more conservative spaces. So you see even how this branch kind of it, it, it occupies the whole spectrum from progressive to conservative. One more thing here before we move on to the distinctives, and, and this is important, especially for Mother's Day, but it's important to, to Methodists. It's inspiring to learn about Susanna Wesley. So uh, John and Charles' mother was Susanna Wesley. She's called the mother of Methodism because of her influence on their lives and a larger group of people. She was a woman of her time. With the expectations that went along with that, she had 25 children, um, 19 of whom lived on to maturity. She was a pastor's wife, uh, married to Samuel Wesley, and they raised their boys in a, in a pastor's home. Uh, early in their marriage, she and Samuel were separated for five months. They lived in different homes. Incidentally, they had a disagreement about politics that was so deep that they separated And when John was six years old, their family survived a house fire that destroyed all of their possessions, and they barely saved him. Somebody grabbed them out of the window, and so they lost all of their possessions. She educated her children. I mean, that's a school when you have that many kids. She educated her children, and in a time when the discipline of children was often physical and harsh, she was known to be strong but also gentle with them. And she held a little church service on Sunday evenings uh, for her children, where they sang songs and she would read a sermon from a book of published sermons from her husband's library and the neighbors started coming. 
And so Susanna Wesley was a spiritual leader in her neighborhood. You remember we talking about grandma? And Susanna Wesley got that into the culture that later became the Methodist movement. So she was a spiritual leader and she was a strong lady. And there's this little funny story throughout the day. I mean, you have 19 kids that are growing up who made it through infancy. When she wanted some alone time and she wanted to pray, she would pull her apron up over her head. She would sit down in a chair, and when the kids knew, when mommy pulls her apron up over her head, leave mommy alone. So that was her, that was her way of trying to get some alone time with 19 children in the house. Now, later on, one of the hallmarks of the Methodist movement is they permitted women to lead. They permitted women to preach. They just saw the value of, of a woman in leadership. This is in the 1700s and the 1800s, folks. Now, why was that? Because of Susanna. Because of their mother. Because they saw a strong woman who was a leader. And when you see that, you can't deny it. And so, for any woman who feels like you haven't had the opportunity in your spiritual life to lead the way that you wanted, or maybe in other parts of life to lead the way that you wanted, well, you're not alone in that feeling because there are a lot of women who have felt like that, including my grandmother. I remember the struggle she went through when there were some members of my family telling her she shouldn't preach sermons, she shouldn't teach an adult Sunday school. But there are people like Susanna Wesley and millions of ladies throughout history who have proven all those people wrong. And I think it's especially important on Mother's Day. So what are some of the distinctives of Anglicans and Methodists? Well, first, uh, Anglicans, uh, they, they call themselves the via media. It's Latin for the middle way. So they see themselves as the, the middle way between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, they are Protestant, but they're very close to being Catholic. So there's a saying within Anglicanism, Protestant yet Catholic. So they came off of the Catholic Church, but they, uh, and they retained a lot of the ritual, kind of the, the, the pageantry of the Catholic Church, but the theology did believe, uh, begin to change. Uh, Anglicans do have similar beliefs about baptism that are similar to Catholics, um, but then the theology began to morph over time. So uh, the Anglicans published the 39 Articles of Faith, and it describes the, the theology of the Church of England. It was um, largely written by the first Archbishop of Canterbury named Thomas Cranmer. It's an extremely influential leader. And Cranmer authored the core material that became the 39 Articles of Faith and the Book of Common Prayer. If you've heard that, the Book of Common Prayer is, a, is a, an order of services, and people use that in their own devotional lives, and it's inspired a lot of people. But here's something really, really important about the 39 Articles of Faith. So, for example, this is part of Article 6, entitled, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. I just want to read this. Holy Scripture, okay, the Bible, containeth, written in the language of the time, all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. So that first line, holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. Now, perhaps you were raised, or maybe as an adult you came to faith in a group uh, of Christians who would extend that statement to say all matters, including matters of history and science. So maybe you came from a group of people who their view of the Bible was not just 
Holy Scripture containeth. I love that language, containeth. It's just fun to say. All things necessary to salvation, but also all truth, including matters of faith and science. Maybe they use the word like inerrancy to describe the Bible. So here's the difference. For somebody who would say, the Bible is true in all it affirms, including matters of history and science. You might raise a high schooler thinking they need to argue with their, their biology teacher when the biology teacher talks about evolution. Because the Bible seems to present creation happening in six days. And, and, and some people counted up the genealogies in 6,000 years ago. But if you believe that Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation... What that means is the Bible is the authority and the guide for your life in matters of faith and salvation and your relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you have to argue with your biology teacher about evolution because that statement acknowledges that there's some gray area in in matters that are not pertaining to faith and salvation where it's okay for Christians to disagree. You see the power of that? And so in the 39 articles, you have a view of the scripture, and just to be full disclosure here, that is also mine. This has been an influence on me and an influence on the well and and lots and lots of churches who come from these branches. The, The Bible contains all things necessary to salvation. And on all those things that aren't necessary to salvation, we can disagree. And it's okay. Not going to hell for believing in evolution. It, that comes from the hard thinking of people who realize, wait a second, we're, we're breaking away from a church that is very authority-centric. And there needs to be some room here for thinking people to be able to work out their faith. And so, yeah, we believe the Bible contains everything we need for salvation. Everything else we can disagree with or disagree about. Maybe you've heard this, this statement. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. Have you ever heard that? That's a great way of summing up this view of the Bible. And that's the part of the Anglicans and then later the Methodists. And the Book of Common Prayer, as I said, was a collection of services and prayers that, that has been revised. And, and the version of the Lord's Prayer that most people know you just said, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. The, the, the version that has made it into pop culture comes from the 1928 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. That's the, the version of the Lord's Prayer that most Americans would say. That's how influential it's been. And then moving on to the Methodist movement, some distinctives, and I'll kind of go through these, and then we're going to get to what, what can we learn, how can we grow. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. It sounds really academic, um, but this is another point. For those of you who feel like, man, I, I have... I have questions, yeah. I have thoughts. I wonder things when I hear sermons, when I read the Bible, and I don't feel like my intellect is really allowed. I feel like I have to check my brain at the door. I feel like I can't really be an intellectually honest person and be a fully committed, passionate Christian. If that's you, you should have listened to the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So John Wesley never used the phrase... It was coined by a later scholar, Albert Outler, writing about John Wesley, but this comes from Wesley's sermons and and his teaching in the Methodist movement. 
So the Wesleyan quadrilateral, quadrilateral means, how do Christians know what we know? How do we know what to believe? And so Wesley said it like this. For, for us, the Bible is the, is the primary authority. It's, it's, the, it's the guide for our salvation, all matters of, of faith and salvation and spiritual practice. The Bible's our authority. So picture it like a three-legged stool. And the, you know what? I'm just bad at props. Let's pretend, this, pretend this, uh, this stand has three legs. The top, the table, is the Bible. And pretend there are two more, or two more legs here. So we have three legs. So the top, we have the Bible. And then the other three legs are tradition, reason. Oh my gosh, we just said reason in church. And experience. So the Bible is the primary authority for our faith. Everything necessary for faith and salvation is in the Bible. We're not going to contradict it. We're going to say, oh, we don't like Jesus that much. No, we want to follow Jesus. The Bible is the authority for our faith. But how do we know what we know? How do we know what we believe? We have three legs of the stool that help us understand the Bible. Tradition, reason, and experience. Tradition. What have Christians always believed about this? What, what do Christians disagree with? I mean, what are the arguments throughout history when it comes to this issue? What do other Christians think about it? So this isn't just me and my little pal Jesus pretending that we've got it all figured out because that's what my pastor down the street told me. And I know everything and I just have to preach to everybody about how they're, they're wrong and I'm right. No, Wesley says, let's, ex- let's actually acknowledge the diversity of Christian opinion. He called that tradition. And the teaching of the church. And then reason. God gave you a brain. God gave you a brain to organize information and to be able to think, and your brain is not your enemy. Now, your brain is not, is not meant to rebel against God, but your brain's meant to be there to help you, to figure things out and not just be a droid and believe whatever some pastor tells you. And then experience. Is this true to my spiritual experience? Is, does this work out in real life? How does this belief work out in real life? So we have the Bible. It's our primary authority. And then we have, what do other Christians believe about this? What have they always believed about this? What are all the arguments, the debates about this tradition? And then reason. I have a brain that I can organize all this information with. And then I have experience. How does this really work in real life? Is it true? Does it work? And that's how Wesley said Christians know what they know. Now, some people are bored by this. Other people go, because for some Christians, it's we just believe the Bible. Really what that means is we just believe whatever the pastor tells you the Bible says. That's all it means. That's all it's ever meant. Wesley said, no, there are, it's more complicated than that. And if you feel like you can't be an intellectually honest person and be a passionate follower of Jesus, Wesley said, the world is my parish. And he preached fiery sermons. He loved Jesus Christ. He wanted to follow Jesus. He was evangelistic. He organized churches and he started churches and, and classes and bands and, you know, and he also had a brain and that's okay. He was somebody who respected the head and the heart. And if you feel like you can't do that, well, that's part of the family tree that now you can. You're not alone. Just like my son, not knowing the word for a mirage, you're not Alone. So how can we grow? Quickly here, how can we grow? Well, first of all, we can love God and our neighbors with both our minds and our hearts. 
You know, one of my one of my deepest passions in life. It's obvious if you've spent any time around me or around here. Is people who feel like, and I mean, it gets emotional. People who can't have good conversations with family members anymore because their family members are indoctrinated by cable news or some pastor, and they they feel alone. They some people have literally been rejected by their families because of who they are. Other people, they're in a journey right now. Maybe it's you, where you realized you were a part of a church, and you're like, I see this. I see this part of Christian America on a speed train towards fascism, and I just can't go there with you. And now you're trying to figure out what it even means to be a Christian. Is it worth it? And one of the things that speaks to me about you know, the Anglicans and the Methodists are you can love God with both your mind and your heart. You don't have to choose one. It, you don't have to be like, well, I'm a smart person, so I can't be a Christian anymore. <laughs> Or I'm a smart person, so my faith can't mean anything to me anymore. I can't be, like, I can't be energized by it and excited by it and passionate about it. Or the, 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 you know, the flip side, well, I want to be passionate about stuff and I want to be committed and I want to, I want to have a fiery faith and I want to be able to worship and sing and, and, and share and do stuff in this world that makes this world better, you know, partner with God. But, so I just, can't, I just have to stuff my questions and pretend they don't exist. No, you don't have to do this thing. You don't have to make that choice. It's a false dichotomy. You can love God with your mind and your heart. The Anglicans and then later Wesley saw religion as a matter of the heart and the head, but it begins and ends with love. And so, for example, uh, how this works out, Wesley talked about social holiness. Social holiness. In uh, a piece of writing he did called The Preface to the Hymns and Sacred Poems in 1739, Wesley wrote this. It's another famous statement of his. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social. No holiness but social holiness. We live in a time in which there are lots of people who call themselves Christians and talk about being righteous and pure and holy, but what it means to them is it's all like dealing with their personal sins, and when it comes to the needs in the world like people being poor or people, you know, not having opportunity, their, their view is, ah, oh, just get a job. So their view of what it means to, to be righteous and holy is all about my own personal sins, but I don't really care about the plight of people. I don't care about, you know, one-fourth of kids in America are born into poverty, which is true, by the way, in the land of opportunity. I don't care about, you know, racial injustice. I don't care about, you know... Uh, People being scapegoated and demonized and, and problems being blamed on them have nothing to do with them just for political reasons. Ah, but I want to be, a, I want to have a pure heart. You know, I don't lust. I don't, and lust isn't good. I'm not saying you should lust. I'm just saying it's all about my own personal sins and everybody else can just, they, who, whatever happens, happens. Wesley says no, no. There is no holiness apart from social holiness. In other words, like the Bible like, like 1 John, how can you say you love God when you don't love your brother or sister? How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother and sister whom you have seen? 1 John says that person's a liar. His words, not mine. And Wesley said, no, there is no holiness. There is no righteousness. There is no godly life that doesn't care about other people and what other people are, are, are going through in life. And that's why... Uh, the Anglicans and, and later the Methodists 
were so concerned about meeting people's social needs to actually meet the physical and mental and emotional and spiritual needs of people. For Wesley, it just began and ended with love. For example, Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 through 8, Paul writes this about God's love. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love, and this is the important part for Wesley, God's love has been, what? Poured, and in the next slide, out. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has, whom has been given to us. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wesley used that phrase over and over and over again. God's love has been poured out into your life and mine. It began and ended with love for Wesley in the head and the heart. That God loves me, God loves you, God loves the person next to you, God loves the person you disagree with, God loves the person in another socioeconomic strata than you, God loves everybody. And when you begin to understand how much God loves you, that God's love has been poured out into your life, it begins to pour out of you. When you feel God's love for you, to, to the extent that is true, you realize how much you are loved, a loved child of God here on Mother's Day, no matter what your situation is. Same will be true on Father's Day. No matter how loved or unloved you feel, when you begin to feel God's love for you, and you really get it, that it's been poured out into you, love automatically begins to come out of you. And you want to love the people around you. And Wesley's sermon on love put it like this. As to the measure of this love, the Lord has clearly told us, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Not that we are to love our or uh, delight in none but him, for he hath commanded us not only to love our neighbor, that is, all men as ourselves, to desire and pursue their happiness. What? Boy, I, I haven't heard that recently. I, I'm not sure that's part of the, you know, what many of us live our lives for here in the Southeast Valley or wherever you're watching. You know, bigger house, bigger cars, make myself happy, get promotions, make as much money as I possibly can. To love our neighbor, to love and desire and pursue their happiness. What? As sincerely and steadily as our own. But also to love many of his creatures in the strictest sense to delight in them, to enjoy them. Only in such a manner and measure as we know and feel, not to indispose, but to prepare us for the enjoyment of him. Thus then we are called to love God with our heart. Again, love is kind. Whosoever feels the love of God and man shed abroad in his heart feels an ardent and uninterrupted thirst after the happiness of all his fellow creatures. Friends, would that change the world? If we felt God's love for us to such an extent that it pours out, that I thirst for the happiness of other people, my goodness, how countercultural is that here in 2022 America? 
If I thirsted for the happiness, what would be good for that person? What would give them joy? That's what it means to love my neighbor as myself. What's good for all of us? What's good for them? To think about them and their happiness. That's what Wesley meant by love. And finally, and we'll wrap it up, meaning and ritual. What can, we, what can we take away for our spiritual growth? Meaning and ritual. This is another one for many of us. It's just kind of strange. Some of us as American Christians, we view any, any rituals repetitive and dead. But the truth is that we all live rituals. And they're actually the most meaningful, important things to us. Brushing your teeth every day is a ritual. How many of you realize that's an important ritual? Right? Cleaning yourself, that's a ritual. Have you ever heard anybody say, I golf religiously? Right? It's, whatever is important to us, we do it over and over and over again. It becomes a ritual, repetitive behavior that gives meaning to us. Um, celebrating birthdays, a ritual. Mother's Day, a ritual. Coming to a church service, a ritual. Having a date night, if you're with somebody, a ritual. Telling people you love that you love them, that's a ritual. Hugging people you love, ritual. They're actually the most meaningful things to us. There's a gas station right up Alma School here where there's a car wash. And the back, the back wall of the gas station, you can see the cars go through the car wash. And they have two soap guns built into that glass where little kids, it's not always kids. Sometimes you see middle-aged guys too doing it. But where, where little kids can shoot, and, and maybe I've been one of those middle-aged guys that has done this where you can see little kids shoot soap at the cars as they go, it's brilliant, as they go through the car wash. And I went to that gas station when we first moved here 10 years ago, and, and my oldest guy was just little, and I thought, oh, we need to do this. And so on a weekly basis for a long time, I would take my oldest son to that car wash. And there's a Dunkin' Donuts in there too, so bonus. And so we would get donuts, and I would get a hot black coffee, and then he would order a hot black coffee, which meant chocolate milk. And he would sit down, and we would eat our donuts and, and hot black coffee, and he would shoot soap at the cars. And then when my little guy came along a few years later, I said, this ritual is so good. There's no way I'm depriving him of this. And so my little guy, we did the same thing. We got donuts and hot black coffee. And we sat down and, and shot soap at the cars. And, and that ritual has such meaning for me when I'm an old man. And, and maybe I get a deathbed, I'm going to be remembering that ritual with my sons. Ritual without meaning, is it's meaningless. It's just boring, you know, sleepy time in church if you go through rituals that have no meaning. But if they have meaning, they're the most meaningful thing to us. Having com- convos regularly with people you have a relationship with. How's our relationship? How are we doing? A checkup. That's a ritual. Game night, pizza night, reading the Christmas story together, praying before meals and bedtime. Or just hanging out, going hiking, That's a, having a hobby, playing guitar. It's a ritual. There's another story I'm going to close with, close with this. A Methodist pastor told this story, actually. There's a, a family in his church who were, I think they were in their 50s, the, the couple. And their, their kids were reaching adulthood. And uh, uh, they had raised their kids in this church. And in this particular church, they had a ritual of saying the Apostles' Creed in the, the church service every week. And actually, I have a slide if you want to look at it. Kind of skip ahead, Susie, and maybe some of you know the Apostles' Creed. Or remember, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. This is on our website. This is, just the, this is the faith. This is what we teach at the well. 
The only difference is here we say you don't have to pretend you believe all of it if you don't, but this is what we teach here at the well. And so in this particular church, they, they recited the Apostles' Creed every week in the service. And so maybe their youngest daughter, I can't remember, went off to college, and it was about a six-hour drive away where she went to college, and I believe she was a freshman. So she had just moved out of the house, and um, six-hour drive away, and they got a phone call. And the phone call said, your, your daughter has been in a serious car accident, and she is in in, uh, I believe it was critical condition. And the, the parents jumped in the car. They didn't even pack. Who cares? Just, they jumped in the car. They took off speeding down the freeway. And then the, the dad told the story to the pastor later on. So we're driving down the road. And I found, I found myself white knuckling the steering wheel and rocking back and forth like this. Eighty, ninety miles an hour, and he said, "I started doing this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord." And he went through the rituals that were meaningful to him. As they were speeding down the freeway to get to their daughter, they didn't know they would make it or not. I think that brings tears to my eyes because I think about the rituals of my own life. And maybe you think about the rituals in yours, but when it comes to Anglicans and Methodists and the churches that, that seem to, you know, they, they, they do a lot of rituals. Sometimes we don't realize why that's important. In our, in our lives, rituals are important, whether they're religious, quote-unquote, or not. But there are spiritual r- rituals that are important. This is one of them. Going to a connect group, serving in a ministry, coffee bar, <laughs> greeting, you know, the rituals like this, the brunch, the tech ministry, all this stuff. People do kids Set up road crew, all these things. They're rituals. The conversations that we have are rituals. The conversations you have with loved ones later today, they're rituals. And they are the most meaningful thing to us. And so just in closing, perhaps one of the things we can take away from Anglicans and Methodists is just the meaning and ritual. How important it is to nurture those rituals because they are the most meaningful thing in life. So Anglicans and Methodists, they... They permit us to have a faith in which we can love God with our minds and our hearts. You don't have to check your brain at the door. You don't have to pretend that it's our little branch that has it all right and everybody else has it wrong. The Bible's the authority, but we've got tradition, reason, and experience here. We can, we can think for ourselves. And we can gather and we can participate in rituals that bring meaning to our lives. And it's okay uh, to, to repeat those things and think about what they mean and, and, and be a thinking person. And be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, thank you for this branch of the family tree here. Branches, actually, Anglicans and Methodists. Who have been a gift to the world. And sometimes, you know, or these, these branches have their origins in silly things. Like King Henry VIII. But then what happens is, is that other people are involved. Cranmer and Susanna Wesley and... And something happens that changes the course of of history for people. And I'm so thankful for the Anglicans and the Methodists because they provided space for thinking people who who are compassionate people and they want to love God with their minds and their hearts. And in a time in American Christianity in which so many people are just being excluded 
because of what they think or who they are and and we're just being sliced and diced and, and our political situation is divide and conquer and it's using religion. Oh God, this is a gift here in the 21st century for us. This is a gift that I can love you with my mind and my heart. God, we don't have to to be intellectually dishonest in order to be passionate Christians. We can be smart people who have a passionate faith, intelligent people who are not afraid of questions, and we can be active and, and get involved in things and partner with you that change the world. We can be zealous and intelligent at the same time. And we thank you for that gift and the inclusion that comes from that when you realize that not everything's black and white and there is gray and what happens is now people get included. My grandma gave sermons and people who have been excluded like LGBTQ folks, they get included because we, we stop this, this, this belief that everything's black and white and easy and having to change our, uh, check our brains at the door and we realize, wait a second, no, there's room to think here. And all kinds of good, wonderful, beautiful things happen when your light is allowed to shine. God, we thank you for your encouragement and the way you've spoken to us today. For some of us, you've opened new doors for us. And we're excited to walk through them as we follow you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. I want to thank you again. I know it's a lot of content, a lot of lists of material, and you're patient and you're, you're thinking people. And I want to I want to thank you for your for your patience and your desire to learn. And again, if you're new with us, you can text "Welcome" to that number you see on the screen. Uh, you get more information about the well. You can also find more information on our website, wellchurch.org. A couple of cool things: we have a membership class coming up May 18th. It's a Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Arizona time. If you, if you're online some other part of the country, you can just join in. There's a Zoom link in my weekly email. We're going to put it on the website as well. That's Wednesday, May 18th, 6 p.m. If you would like to uh, go to a one-hour membership class about what it means to be a member of the well. And then we have another Baptism Sunday coming up May 22nd here after the service. We'll go out and uh, we'll get the aluminum tank out again. And we're going to baptize some folks and celebrate a new life in Christ on May 22nd. And then next week we're continuing this series talking about Lutherans and Presbyterians. And we have so much that we can learn from them. And, and then finally, thank you to those who give to the well. If you're new, it's not for you. It's for people who say this is my home church. And I want to support it. So let's go ahead and stand together if you're able. And again, uh, all ladies, uh, women and girls, please grab a flower on the way out. If you have a daughter and well kids, make sure you take one for her to give to her. And let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather here in person and online, wherever we are joining right now. We thank you for this church community. Thank you for the brunch today that was beautiful and a great time to hang out. Thank you for the coffee bar volunteers that are going to create more fellowship opportunities. Thank you for everybody who serves. We have such an awesome team here who literally sweats and sets stuff up and takes it down and, and works through problems and just great, talented people who make all of this happen. We're thankful for them. And God, thank you. Uh, for the kind of people who want to learn from the various branches of the family tree and ask how we can spiritually grow. And God, most of all, we thank you that you love us, that Wesley, uh, as Wesley said, you pour out your love into us. God, if we could just get a glimpse of that and, and begin to feel that emotionally, especially on a day like Mother's Day, we feel your love for us. It begins to automatically pour out into other people. As Wesley said, that we would thirst for the happiness of others. My goodness. That would change the world. 
We thank you that you have that love for us and we're invited into that kind of a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.